podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. Thank you very much, as always, for downloading us and giving us a listen. And I'm joined, as always, by TMS's national treasure, Mr. Daniel Norcross and cricketing legend, Mr. Stephen Finn. Lovely to see you again, chaps. Finney, how was how was driving Norcross home after, after we all met up the other day? If you didn't hear the last episode of the podcast, we went to the booking.com Cricket T20 Pavilion, recorded a podcast there. We hung out in basically a young cricket fan's idea of heaven. Cricket memorabilia everywhere, cricket on the TV. The only disappointment really was the company. The three of us were forced to hang out, but Finney was giving Norcross a lift back to the station. How was he, Finney? How is he as a passenger? The fact that I'm seeing you again twice in a week is it repulses me. That's why I'm barely looking at the camera right now, preoccupying myself with other things but no he only fell asleep a couple of times wet himself once because he'd had a couple too many um, sparkling waters whilst we were in the caravan had to stop and mop that up had to get him the easy access ramp down to the platform at the station but once I'd got all that out of the way and that had only took an hour it was um it was absolutely fine oh you got off lightly only a couple of uh <laughs> only wet himself a couple of times uh, <laughs> Daniel Norcross you're a because Stephen Finn there said that you repulse him Oh, I have, I have no doubt. But it, it was very nice of him to, to let me uh, foul up his £950,000 supercar. So it's, like a, it's like a giant Batmobile, but you could fit like eight or nine different Batmen in it, which I suppose you have to if you're as, as monstrously huge as Easter Island statue come cricketer Stephen Finn. Uh, and he was very gentle with me, actually. He lifted me out of the, uh, of the car very gently and deposited me at the station uh, in a dribbling heap. Um, the gin and tonics have done their business. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's not being as kind to himself as he should be. You make a very good carer. You really would. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, if it doesn't work out at Sussex. And um, do you know what? I have my first bowl today, actually, in six weeks. Oh, I wanted to ask you about this because I, uh, I was perving on you on Instagram and I saw you post your first day at Sussex. So how did that go? It's like starting it. Well, it genuinely, must be bizarre. You've done... You've been at Middlesex your whole career. How is it fitting in at a new place? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm fortunate that I've fitted in or had to fit in in various franchise systems and the 100 this summer and go in and out of the England dressing room. I mean, or a, a, like a cycle of players in and out of the England dressing room. So getting on with people and just cracking on with training and stuff isn't all that alien to me. But yeah, I think... It's sort of the realisation, well, not the realisation, but there's a lot of excitement there because it's a complete fresh start, which I think for anyone is a really refreshing, good thing to be able to experience. But yeah, going in and being in their dressing room as opposed to being in the away dressing room when you're in a place when you've played for so long is um, is slightly strange. But it's been fun. I had a good first day. I didn't fail any of the tests that we had to do. It came through all of those with flying colours. What sort, of, what sort of test do they give you? Is it like, is it well, the, French, the geography, history? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, past those, past those ones. Um, yeah, fat, weight, um, and then you like, have talks about how you go or how you want to approach the winter and what you're going to do and how you want to come out the other side of it as a better player. So, yeah, it's been great so far. I've really enjoyed my first full proper day with the team. 
I've just had a great idea for a video, lads, is that Norcross, me and you and Finney should be put through a traditional cricket pre-season testing. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would actually really enjoy it. It's got to be weighted to age. There's no way that's acceptable. And, and you need to have a defibrillator on hand if I'm going to go anywhere near. Um, <laughs> but there is a defibrillator on hand, isn't there? There has to be. I'm sure there has. Health and safety. There will always be a defibrillator on hand. Well, the thing is, the, the fat testing that you have to do. So there was actually no running today because you build up to that because guys haven't. October is generally the month where cricketers don't do too much and you stay off your feet. Yeah. So if you were to come in on the first day and do a 2K time trial or a yo-yo test, there'd be blown hamstrings and quads all over the place. So there was no running today. But what they do make you do, and, it, and it's a strange thing because you get very comfortable in a dressing room wearing no clothes around people that you see all the time because you just get used to so-and-so being naked over there or so-and-so being naked here. But today you have to strip down to your pants and you have to stand there and they mark up your body with these eight sites on it and they take calipers that would usually be used to measure the size of rocks for geologists, but they use it to measure the fat on certain sites of your body for sportsmen. So they go around and they pinch the fat and you get a score at the end of it and that score is then what your winter's training is somewhat based on. And um, yeah, if you've got a high score, then you get worked really, really hard. And if you've got an okay or a low score, then you get worked hard. <laughs> okay, so, so you, you were smiling then. So does that mean that you got a okay? I was, a I was at the top end of okay, I'd say, but it was okay. Seeing as I've not played a cricket match since the middle of August, I um, I wasn't too disappointed, but there, there's certainly a little bit of work to do. When you said you you stripped down to your pants and a man pulled out some weird device to measure, I was glad that you said fat <laughs> after that. <laughs> I thought, I don't know how that information is useful at all. Uh, now, now, you said you had a bowl as well. How did you, how did you, how, what was your first ever bowl at Sussex? Was there a batsman in the net? Was it just at some stumps? How'd it go? No, just because there are a couple of technical things that I want to work on this winter. So, um, it's always nice when you work with someone new. So James Kirtley, I've not worked with him before, um, who is the Sussex assistant coach and, or sorry, he's joint first team coach and bowling coach. And just, I suppose it's like two boxers getting a ring and just sizing each other up for the first round. So we got into the nets and had a little spar with each other. And it was, it was great. Yeah. A couple of different ideas and different ways that I've not trained before. Uh, which when you've been in the same place for so long, sometimes you don't get that diversity of of opinion or way of doing things. So, so yeah, I, I didn't hit the side netting. In fact, they they were remarkably good, actually. Like, as in, I bowled a pretty good line and length the entire time for about half an hour. So um, maybe there's something in it. Maybe we might see a, a test match resurgence. Who knows? I, I've always said if it weren't for batsmen getting in the way, you'd be a decent bowler, Finney. No, exactly. No. <laughs> I've, I've got to say, James Kirtley, though, what a bowler he was. 614 first-class wickets. Didn't him and Martin... Am I hallucinating here? Dan, you'll remember this. Mm. Didn't James Kirtley mm. and Martin Bicknell both have a great series against South Africa once at home? Oh, South Africa, yeah. Well, that's a great Martin Bicknell uh, ball, isn't it? Is it Jack Rudolph, I think, he gets yeah. leaving it. Yeah. Um, and it was at the Oval. It was so fitting. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. As many things have done this week, actually, I'll run through them as we as we go through the episode. But 
Yeah, that was. Yeah, I think I think Curtly was involved in that series as well. It was a strange time of transition, wasn't it? Because there was Goff and Caddick around, but they were coming towards the end of their careers, and Bicknell had been brought back after it was was it something like eight years since his previous game or something of that sort. It was. Yeah. Um, it, it was. Now you put me on the spot now, but it's it has brought back a nostalgic glow. I think I was about your age then, Toby. <laughs> I certainly were not. I was. I was. Yeah. I was. I was. I genuinely was. I was. I think I was a year older than you are now. Yeah. When I when I heard that ball clattering the stumps, so you can imagine, uh, you're not that far away from senescence yourself. If you can, if you can even recall it, that's the way time goes horribly quickly. Well, Tarrant. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm going to organise this. We're going to do a pre-season fitness test, and uh, and then and then we can stop giving Finney abuse for how unfit he is when. We look like a pair of mugs. Uh, Finney, is there any sign of, of Joffre Archer at Sussex yet? Because he has vowed this week to do everything in his power to avoid ever having to watch another tournament on the sofa again. Is there talk of Joff at Sussex? Did you see him down there? No, I didn't see him. I think he's still in Barbados, judging by his Instagram story that he put up today. So no, no sign of him there. But I'm looking forward to potentially playing some games with him because he's actually... A guy that especially, I mean, obviously the whole time that I've seen him play, but 2019 especially, like when I watched him bowl in that Ashes series in the World Cup and I was sort of trying to make my way into the Middlesex first team. It's like not the first time that I've been like really, really inspired because you're inspired by people that you see all the time. But but yeah, there was something really exciting about him that summer and watching him from afar. So I'm really looking forward to at some stage being able to watch him up close. Just, just one last thing from me on Sussex. Really, obviously, it's a very young team, so a lot of them have been around. Have you, have you been taking around the soft play area? Because they really are <laughs> around about three or four years. I'm, um, I'm too tall for that. <laughs> I'm too tall for the soft play area, unfortunately. You'll be monitoring your, your colleagues to make sure they don't hurt themselves. No, I'll be having a go if there is one, definitely. So Finney, Finney's going to be the elder statesman. All these youngsters are going to be looking up to you, Finney. You're going to be like sat down and they'll all be gathered in a semicircle oh. around you being like, what was playing for England like? Basically like me and Dan every week. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this. I'm so looking forward. You, you are going to discover what it's like to be the subject of ageism on a regular <laughs> basis. And, and eventually you'll get sick of it. You really will. They'll ask you about things like tape recorders. And uh, is, it, is it true that milk used to get delivered to your house? And uh, what was it like when you didn't have a mobile phone? It'll, be, it'll drive you absolutely berserk. But I'm sure you'll take it in good grace because you're you're one of the more cheery individuals I've met. That's why I got my ear pierced. See that? Look at it. Oh, hey. dangly. oh look oh. at it! Oh, got, oh my god! Oh, it's got it's a little real. dangly bit on it. I have noticed, Finney, as well. You you you've become very at home with that earring because you stroke it whilst you talk. Yeah, absolutely. It's there. Do you know what though? I I do have something to admit to you and the podcast that for my first day at Sussex training, I, I actually did take it out. Oh. I didn't want to make the wrong impression. <laughs> oh, you bottled it. You bottled it. Oh, yeah, really? I absolutely bottled it, yeah. Oh, I was sat mate. in the car, actually. I, I pulled up to oh. the ground, and I was like 20 minutes early, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I was like, as a 32-year-old who people could potentially respect because you played quite a lot for England, do you want to walk through that door to all the youngsters <laughs> and the people in that dressing room with this fucking silver dangly thing hanging <laughs> off your ears. So I was like, no. If it closes up, I'll go to a tattoo and piercing shop in Brighton later in the evening and get it re-pierced. Uh, otherwise, I'll try and fit it in in the car. So 
when I got back in the car after I did my three or four hours there, um, it went straight back in my ear. Now, when are you going to be brave enough to unfurl it to to the Sussex teammates? Well, I don't know. I do, not before I go away. Not before I go away to Australia. I don't think so. I've got a couple pick, of weeks pick off, of pick them off. Pick them off one at a time, Finney. That's that's the way to do yeah. it. Yeah, just make make it a little bit of a shock for each one at a time. But you know, choose the one who's who's you know least piss takey first. Yeah. You know, that, <laughs> and, well, they're and, all too got, young to like to come in with balls and abuse the thirty-two-year-old. I think so. I could could get away with them. It, it's on your left side, so just make sure James Kirtley's always on the right of you when you're bowling as well. So he's got no idea. <laughs> he was today, to be fair. He was. Good, perfect. He never needs to know. James Kirtley never needs to know. A traditional a traditional old first-class cricket like him never needs to see that. Now, if you do want to see Stephen Finn's earring in all its glory, we have, of course, got this live show coming up. It's less than two weeks away. So Saturday, 13th of November, 5 p.m. in London, in Leicester Square, right in the centre of London, uh, if you are a cricket fan or a fan of this podcast, or if you know anybody else, you've got a friend or a family member, a partner, a, a son, a daughter, anyone that loves their cricket, uh, we promise it's going to be an awesome night. It is the three of us and Stephen Harmison as well. So we're going to be talking to him all about roughing up Ricky Ponting and getting Michael Clark with a slower ball and that spell against West Indies. And maybe that less impressive delivery to kick off the Ashes famously as well. An amazing career Harmy's had. He's going to be joining us and we are donating some money from all the tickets as well to the wonderful charity Lord's Taverners. So we'd love to see you there. So Ticketmaster, you can get the tickets, but Zero Ducks given doing our first ever live show Saturday 13th of November at 5pm in Leicester Square. So please come and join us in a couple of weeks' time. Let's get into the cricket. And um, at the time of recording, the 2020 World Cup Continues to go very well for England, although Sri Lanka have just pushed them very, very close this afternoon. Uh, but there's only one man that we can talk about when talking about this England side at the moment, and that is Joss Butler. Now, we've known Joss Butler's very, very good for a long time. We've, we've known how good he is, but what marks you and defines you as a cricketer or any international sportsman is doing it in the big moments. And so far, at the time of recording, four matches in this T20 World Cup. He's been not out for eight times. He's got a batting average of 214 and a strike rate of 153. He hit the most incredible 100 against Sri Lanka. He looked like he ruined it. He was on 95 with three balls remaining. Dot ball, dot ball, and then got a beautiful full toss on the pad that he dispatched way over the boundary to finish on 101 not out of 67. And we should point out, he got to 50 of 45 balls. He went absolutely berserk after that. Finney, you've obviously played, you know, a bit with and against Joss Butler. Just how good is he when you're bowling him in the nets? He, he looks to me like the, you, there's nowhere the ball's safe against him. Yeah, he's one of the few guys that the ball just sounds different off his bat. And I don't quite understand what it is or how he does it. He's got really, he's got big hands, like big, like strong farmer's hands got big wrists big big strong wrists and forearms and he whips through the ball somehow so he snaps his wrist as he hits it but yeah ever since I mean, I've not actually played against him that much I've played one first class game two first class games against him maybe but played with him a lot for England and trained with him a lot and the ball of even of all the great batsmen that I've played with or against like his the ball just sounds different off his bat and and I think that that's why he is seen and he is a, such a valuable asset in 
all formats of the game. But yeah, he's, he's phenomenal to watch up close. And I'm glad that I was on his team for a lot of the time and not on the receiving end of it. It's interesting you say about those wrists. I watched the video that Sky put out once of him and Flintoff comparing six hitting. And Flintoff always used to really focus on keeping his wrist strong when he struck the ball. And that was where he felt he got a lot of the power from, was having really strong, solid wrists. But Josh Butler's making a mockery of that theory at the minute. Since he moved to open the batting for the England T20 side, he has scored 1,089 runs at a batting average of 60.5. He's got 11 50s and 126 innings. I mean, those are good test stats, let alone 2020 yeah. stats. And finally got that 100 and a strike rate of 149. And he's been not out eight times since moving to open the batting. A freak, isn't he, Norcross? He's a freak, but he's actually a testament to something that you see quite a bit in batters. I mean, not so much in bowlers, I think, but what a batter does is so totally different from what bowlers do. And the hand-eye business and the way Finney was talking there about his wrists, he's played a lot of other racket sports. And I, I sometimes think of A.B. de Villiers. When I first saw Joss Butler, he felt like England's A.B. de Villiers. And de Villiers has got a massive multi-sport background. And the thing that Butler does that's so baffling, which is exactly what Finney's talking about, is that he uses his wrists to decide where the ball's going to go. And Poxy Fowler was on Zero Docs a few weeks back when he hurled red wine all over my sitting room by accident by tipping the table up. He saw Joss in practice once. And I know Foxy's, you know, he's an older cricketer and they had different ways then. You know, 40 over cricket, if you've got 180, you're outside. But he's a coach and has been a coach for many years. And he was absolutely staggered when he watched the way Joss trained, which is to basically take a ball and try to hit it 360 degrees and you know, practice against the same ball, trying to hit it anywhere so that wherever you put the field, you're one step ahead. Now, obviously, he's better at certain shots than others, but he's able to do that, isn't he? Because that wrist is so flexible. It's able to guide the ball in places that other people can't, unlike Flintoff, who's quite, as you say, quite rigid when he's hitting down the ground. So in a way, that the ball, you bowl at him, you can find a weakness, but Butler takes that out of it. And today... You know, we've watched in this extraordinarily weird competition, sides batting first have really struggled to know how to set a target. You know, despite playing careers in T20 when they'll be having to set a target and having to chase, this has been a really strange tournament for him. And we saw India limp to 110, Australia to 120. Shane Watson talking about a lack of intent. You know, you've just got to get harder at it. And we sort of thought that we'd seen England fall for the same trap, really. They were 47 off 10 overs or 48 off 10 overs. But Butler was still there. And the difference, I guess, was that for England, Butler managed to stay in. Because he stayed in, he was always going to catch up. You know, Paul Collingwood talked about how they thought 110, 120 might have been at halfway stage. But he makes a mockery of those pars. And it's so vital there because the conditions, as we all saw, changed so much. Finney, I mean, looking at the way the bowlers were struggling as the dew came down, that's ser serious amounts of boys to come down. I mean, it really gives you such a massive advantage, doesn't it? If you get to bowl first. Yeah, yeah, massive, massive. But I also think that this is a reason why this England team can win this World Cup. And we knew that they could beforehand, but before when we played in World Cups and the two that I played in, the T20 in 2012 and the 50 over one in 2015, you you get yourself in those situations, you're struggling and then your arse falls out basically because you, you just get scared about the situation and you panic under pressure and you don't drag it back. When you look at that halfway stage, what were we, 48 for three 40, or something? 48 at, the half, three, yeah. at the halfway stage with Morgan on 
I think three off twelve or something, and, and Butler with forty off um, off forty two, something like that, and 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 their confidence and belief that they can still, if they give themselves time and not panic against, is it Hasaranga, the guy who was bowling really yeah. well, who bowls yeah, the yeah. balls and stuff, before a couple of middle order batters are having a big swing across the line at that, getting out and not taking it deep. But these guys are so confident that they can catch up. And that's a mixture of skill and just pure belief in the fact that their method and their ability to read a game situation is the best in the world. That's why I really think this England team is phenomenal. Just just the way that they've won that game today. But Butler, I mean, there's something extraordinary, something else that happened that I noticed in the Australia game. I haven't spoken since that. It wasn't just people on the England bench that were laughing. I, mean, I, I was with some people watching the game. And as he, and I know it's against Australia, but the laughter did not come out of Schadenfreude. The laughter was, you just can't be doing that. The, the sixes he hit back to back off Stark, the, the way he took Zampa to pieces. In that game, one of the more remarkable things is that the best bowlers that Australia have got, their team is based on their bowling attack. He just took them out. And the one, mm. one bowler he didn't was Ashton Agar. Yeah, you can have him. Yeah, pick <laughs> him again. That's fine. <laughs> what I'm going to do is take down your gun fast bowlers and Adam yeah. Zampa. And, and people were laughing. I mean, Finney, you obviously played with some geniuses in your time. Is that what happens? Do you just sometimes just look aghast and go, what? <laughs> How do you even yeah. begin to well, it's, do that? It's dumbfounding. Yeah, it's dumbfounding, isn't yeah. it? How he does it. But he's he. there's something about him. He's, a, he's an incredibly competitive man and and wants to win at everything. So warm-up football. I mean, I had some scraps with him when we played warm-up football a few times. Like, you go shoulder to shoulder with him and he'd come back for more as well. He'd come back for a little nibble after afterwards and be serious about it. So he's got this, like, mode that he flicks into where he, he's just complete tunnel vision towards winning whatever he's doing. And you can see it in the in the games you look at his face and the concentration and where his mind might be and he's solely focused on winning the game I mean remember that 100 that he scored against Australia when we were absolutely dead and buried when we were nine down and and it, he was going to win Old that Trafford. game for England Old Trafford and you just never ever felt as though it wasn't going to happen so he's, he's got an incredible ability and I've seen it firsthand a number of times England are just so so lucky to have him yeah, and uh, Ben Stokes on Twitter. It's been lovely. I mean, Ben Stokes obviously has had his struggles over the last year. Uh, yeah, however, it's so nice to see him now getting involved in the tournament on social media. Um, he's been tweeting a lot during the tournament, basically complimenting all his, his England teammates and all his mates. But he called Joss Butler best in the world. And it is very, very hard to argue with that at the moment. He just looks on another planet at the moment. And as an England fan, long may it continue. Yeah, um, I, I that's, that's obviously the case. But, you know, one of the things that England fans need to take out of this game, though, is how capricious this tournament is because England will play all their games in the evening. They've, they've had one day game and all of the rest of their matches will take place in the evening. And if you lose the toss and you do end up having to bowl last, then even when they put on a, you know, has a really competitive total under 63, gets really tough to bowl as that ball gets wetter and wetter. Now, if England find themselves up against... Pakistan or Afghanistan 
or New Zealand. I mean, it's highly unlikely to be India. We'll come on to that later. <laughs> but uh, any any of those teams, if they get the opportunity, except Afghanistan, who weirdly have a game plan of batting first. But New Zealand, for example, you'd probably say man to man, England are a better side. But this tournament is, it feels that that toss is going to be really significant unless whoever gets lucky and it's a night when there isn't due but it looks like the due just happens you know it's gonna it's gonna be the case if anything it'll get more dewy because we're getting further into winter yeah the the toss is absolutely massive as a tournament which means although i do believe that england and pakistan are the best two sides in the tournament if in the semi or the final you lose that toss well then it could be very different uh, Brittany, I was fascinated. I heard Sam Curran talking earlier on TV about the fact that in training they prepare for the dew and that they even dip the ball in buckets of water sometimes now when they're training. Was that happening in your time when you were playing? Yeah, yeah. And even, um, I mean, it's such a waste of £60. Like, those balls are £60 a pop. Yeah, and, and the rest sometimes, um, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you've thrown it into a bucket of water to make it wet, but there's no other way to replicate the practice. Um, and that is, you know, that that's... Like the only thing that you can do to get out there and try and make it a little bit realistic. Um, so yeah, you, the blokes literally have a bucket of balls. It's like if you were to put cricket balls in an apple bobbing bucket <laughs> and then they just pull them out and belt them up straight off the bat. Yeah, so they're literally dripping when they come down. I never knew that happened. You reminded me suddenly, and I'm going to bring the tone right down, but at least it's Richie Benno. But Richie Benno talked during a rain break back in the 80s at some point about the art of becoming a leg spinner and involved a bucket and involved dipping your hands into a bucket of urine because it was the only way to harden up the calluses on your hands to make them good enough for, for leg spin bowling. So look on the bright side, Finney. At least you're putting your hand into a bucket of water as opposed to a bucket of piss in order to improve your art. <laughs> There, there must be uh, there must be other materials that that you'd help think, calluses. You? You'd, and, and, you'd think, but Richie I, was Richie was a child of the war, wasn't he? In those days, everything was about sticking your hand in piss or you I, know giving it. A... <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to know what what else he tried before he arrived at piss. I don't know what else he dipped his calluses in. You've got to you've got to wonder, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of huge buckets of piss, uh, the Indian cricket team at the minute. Uh, I mean, they're absolutely shocking at the moment. It's bizarre. I, I was thinking earlier today, actually, and I know I don't speak for all England cricket fans, but I think a massive majority. I feel like English cricket fans are desperate to be good at test cricket and we're not very good at it, but the Indians are brilliant. And the Indian cricket fans would <laughs> love to be great at white ball cricket, but they're brilliant at test cricket. And they've really underperformed in white ball cricket um, a lot over the years. Um, like you said, no one. Okay, well, I'm, I'm all for it. They really struggled to set a total against New Zealand. 110 they scraped to. Kohli, nine off 17 in that innings. Uh, Dan, what's your theory for where it's all going wrong? Well, I, I think, I'm interested in what both of you guys say, but, but also, you know, especially Finney, because back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, England was, it wasn't the IPL because it didn't work like that, but actually all the major limited overs competitions and all domestic competitions where anybody could make money from around the world from a domestic competition, you had to come to England. And every county had two overseas pros, sometimes three, and could only play two, you know, through 70s and 80s. So you got these guys coming in, they had to perform really, really well because there was serious money in it. It was game-changing money. That was how you could like make a life as a cricketer if you could get yourself a county and be good there. So in England, there were the likes of Hadley, Malcolm Marshall, Gordon Greenwich, Barry Richards. The list goes on and on and on. But, you know, there were, there were 36 minimum great overseas players. 
Now, India, I think, are a similar, uh, they've got a similar problem. They've got the IPL, and they get a load of overseas players to play in the IPL, and you, there's money in there that's game-changing money, but you've got to be on top of your game to keep on getting those IPL contracts and to keep on getting paid each time because you get paid per performance. Whereas the Indian sides, of course, they've got to play seven Indians, so there are 56 Indian players playing. Now, you've got some of these sort of grandees of the game, like Kohli, Rahul, Rohit Sharma. They can't be dropped. There's a sort of sensibility in India that these are grandees of the game. They can't be got rid of. And what the IPL's actually produced is a bunch of really great young cricketers because they've had to prove themselves in a similar market to the way the overseas players have. But India haven't picked those young players as a general rule. They've picked quite quite old, quite a staid top order. Meanwhile, the overseas teams, England, New Zealand, the West Indies especially, have benefited from playing in the IPL. They know what it's all about. They've had to play at the highest level. So you've got this strange situation that feels a bit like England found itself in in the 70s and 80s, where English county cricket trained up a whole bunch of overseas players. So suddenly Pakistan were winning comfortably in England. All their players had played in England. The West Indies, I know they're a great team, but all their players, played in England. England lost all their home advantage. They lost all of that. But the cricket was way more fun domestically. And I think the IPL, perversely, you'd look at the IPL and think, well, that means India are going to win. Surely they'll win the World Cup. But actually, it's worked the absolute other way around. Is that insane or does it make a kind of sense? No, that's fascinating because, um, you know, I mean, I know that the England white ball team has is obviously just it's it's mind blowing to watch how good they are now and how much they've changed in recent years under Owen Morgan. But we're playing in subcontinent conditions. The spinners are, by and large, pr- causing all the problems, bowling all the best overs, taking the most wickets, going for the less runs. A few years ago, if you'd combined England white ball cricket with sp- facing loads of spin, we would have been absolutely battered in this tournament. But you're right, because these guys have all played in India so much, they've probably got more accustomed to, to this okay, than anybody else. Bairstow, Bairstow, yeah. Butler, Livingston's about there, Morgs. I mean, Moe and Ali, mm. the, the batting side, had, and they've had to prove themselves in order to keep on getting those, those kind of figures, get that kind of money to play in the IPL. In a way that, you know, don't be wrong, Kohli's always wanted to prove himself. So is Rohit Sharma, but it's a different thing. They're always going to get a gig in the IPL, those guys. It's not the same pressure as it is for Bearstow to have to keep performing. Look at Jason Roy, couldn't get into the IPL side, always striving, always trying to better himself. And I just wonder if that actually has helped England and New Zealand more than it's helped India. Yeah, you could be very right. Um, I do want to also talk about Owen Morgan, who in the game that's happened uh, just at the time of recording, uh, it's very good that he finally scored some runs. Obviously, his form was a bit of a question mark coming into the tournament. He even, in the most classically noble Owen Morgan captain comment ever before the tournament started, said he would drop himself. He wouldn't stand in the way of England being successful. But, I mean, there's no way that we'd ever accept Owen Morgan not being in the side. You know, even if he got a golden duck every week, what he makes up for it in the field of his captaincy, that was a tight game. One of the best games of the tournament as well. And uh, Atherton said afterwards on the box that, Winning those sort of games is more exciting than than blowing teams away like they did against Australia. You feel a bit more of accomplishment. Uh, we've talked about him before, Finney, but I was watching Owen Morgan out there. And no matter how tight the game got, then time on Mills got injured. It all looked like it was going wrong at times. But Owen Morgan, he's always so calm. And he was just making sure fielders are in the right place. He knew which boundaries to protect, which bowlers to bowl when. 
it's terrifying because we sit there at home not being able to think clearly, and yet he's in the middle of it. It, it. it just seems to be, he seems to be captaining at a different pace to all the other captains in the world at times when I watch him. He's, he's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, the, his great skill, I think, is being able to assess a situation and make a decisive decision about what he, what he believes is the right course of action and then sticks with it. Um, and I think that's a great strength to have because as a captain, you can doubt yourself or second-guess yourself. I think having had this group of players together for a number of years also helps because when you're in a scenario, you know who your go-to people at that stage of the game are, or if you're desperate for a wicket, then you know who you go to. And and I think that it's a combination of all those things that, that allow him to be able to just take a step back from it, take a breath and just really assess quickly in his head what he believes the, the right course of action is. So what's made of the sort of the confidence that he gives other players around him? And you played in England's white ball setup when there was a perception that if you failed, if you if you got out badly, then it would be scrutinised. The shot that you play gets scrutinised, much as Indian players are actually, constantly. And with Morgan, there's this notion that there's freedom, that as long as the shot selection was the right one, if you didn't execute it, well, fair enough, but at least your, your mind was clear and you'll be supported. How much does that help batters specifically, as distinct from bowlers? Because obviously, you know, their, their performance hangs by a thread. They get out and it's all over. You, you at least get to bowl again for the last ball to go for six. So that's, that was sort of the problem for English white ball cricket for a long time. It felt that England's batters weren't pushing themselves hard enough to get to, to higher scores. And under Morgan, the exact opposite is true. They can score an absolute million and also tank it occasion, very occasionally. Yeah, I think the one of the main things that has happened since Owen's become captain is that people are responsible and accountable for what they do. So it's not completely carefree, go and have a slog and we'll just see what happens. There has to be um, something calculated behind the way you're playing or what you're doing. And that starts in practice and being accountable and having just whatever you want as an England player available in practice then means that when it comes to performing out on the pitch, there's no one to blame but yourself because you've had everything there that you wanted in order to prepare yourself for the game. And I think that that accountability, the personal accountability, means that when you walk there onto the pitch, you're allowed to do it on your own terms because that's how you've prepared to do it. And I think that there's a big difference between that and then, and, and I think that frees people up to go out there and express themselves as we see this whiteboard team do so well as opposed to having a prescriptive game style. And then I think if you intersperse that with the experience that they have in the team now with Butler, Roy, Morgan, Chris Jordan, the bowling department, Adil Rashid, Moen Ali, all guys who played a lot of games of T20 cricket for England, you intersperse that experience to help people make correct decisions at the correct moments in games, then I think it's a really dangerous, dangerous team. And that's exactly what they're showing, especially... I think Mike Atherton's right with what you said there, that games like today show how good a team really is because you're up against it and you're struggling and you come back from that position to put yourselves ahead of the game and stay there. Whereas England teams in the past, before this era of players, would have folded under the pressure of being faced with subcontinental spinners bowling in their own conditions. So it's been super impressive so far and, and hopefully they can keep the momentum going. Yeah, absolutely. And just one final thing on our Morgan, because I do want to move on, but uh, it was a small thing I noticed a few months back that uh, I think it was the ICC put out a video 
and they asked Twitter, uh, who's got the best Yorker in the world? And it was, you know, Afridi and Stark, and they put a few names up there. And Owen Morgan, off his own personal account, just replied to it because one man that wasn't in the video was Chris Jordan. And Owen Morgan replied just saying, none of these, Chris Jordan. And it was a small thing, but I think Chris Jordan is such an under, undersung hero sometimes in this team. And he's having a wonderful tournament. And he's actually dealing with those conditions that we talked about probably better than any fast bowler in the tournament at the moment. He's really good when the conditions are difficult with that dewy ball. And it was a really nice touch from Owen Morgan, I thought. Well, and like this also now shows the importance of franchise cricket for this team uh, and to make them better because Chris Jordan has played a lot of PSL cricket in Dubai and in those exact conditions at those exact grounds. So in the past where you were shielded from these tournaments and you're only ever going to get better by playing in England against English players, the, the fact that the guys have gone out there and diversified their experience in conditions, which again is something that Owen Morgan's talked about a lot since he's become England captain, has been the importance of guys going out there and experiencing different pressures and conditions in different parts of the world. Having done that for a number of years in the PSL, that experience that Chris Jordan now brings to the entire team and with his performance is invaluable. So there's no doubt that the, the past planning is now bearing fruit. And, and as always with tournament play and, and games in a tournament, you hope that they can keep that momentum going, but they've started so promisingly. Chris Jordan, he, there's obviously a lot of respect for him in the dressing room. And, you know, he's a brilliant cricketer. He's a, you know, three-dimensional cricketer. But when I was doing one of those online things before the tournament started, you know, pick your England eleven. he's kind of one that you find yourself getting rid of. And I don't really know why, actually, because it shows what I know, because he's such a useful cricketer to that side. So, uh, as always, Owen Morgan was right. And unsurprisingly, I was wrong. <laughs> I do want to finish, actually, on a very serious topic. So, we mentioned this uh, a few times since we've been doing this podcast. But this is the continued dispute between Azim Rafiq and Yorkshire and a really quite depressing, worrying, sad, aggravating, annoying article that George DeBell wrote for Crick Info uh, at the time of recording earlier today. And so George has got hold of some very, very interesting information that sadly isn't a surprise as well. So Azim Rafiq, if you don't know what we're talking about, has for a long time now, quite rightly, been up in arms and complained about the way that he was treated at Yorkshire at times, racially abused. And it feels like this has been going on for far too long. And I feel so sorry for Azim Rafiq because, yes, he's got a legal team with him and stuff, but he has been relentless because he knows that he's been done wrong and he's been relentless uh, in recent months and years about this. And a report was recently done by Yorkshire and we're getting more and more information all the time. And it is now in front of the ECB as well. And that is important. The ECB have got a huge role to play here. So George DeBell for uh, Crick Info says at least one Yorkshire player admitted to regularly using a derogatory term for a Pakistani. I don't feel comfortable saying it. I think everybody listening knows what word I'm talking about. But regularly using that term, he says, I mean, this, is, this isn't easy reading. Uh, he says that one of the players asked, is that your uncle? When they saw bearded Asian men, they said, does your dad own those in reference to corner shops? And despite admitting, recalling that Rafiq broke down in tears at one point, the player insisted he had no idea he was causing offence and would have stopped if Azim Rafiq had asked. The, the reading doesn't get any easier. Now, Yorkshire say the panel does not accept that Azim was offended by the other players' comments, either at the time that they were made or subsequently. 
I've got a real problem that because clearly he's offended subsequently. Otherwise, he wouldn't constantly be trying to get some um, some long overdue sort of retribution for this whole thing. So clearly he was offended at the time and clearly subsequently. They're going to say that in the context, it was banter between friends and that word banter is, it's always a horrible word to be wheeled out, especially in a situation like this. However, for me, the most troubling part of this entire report is this almost attempt to put a bit of blame at Azim Rafiq's doorstep. And I find this pretty horrendous. The panel accuses Rafiq of using offensive racially derogatory comments when he referred to a Zimbabwean player as a Zimbo from Zimbabwe. Now, Yorkshire said they view that as a racist derogatory term and that if Rafiq was still a Yorkshire player, and I'm sure he's very grateful he isn't at the moment, he would face disciplinary action for it. We should point out that the word Zimbo is very, very different to the derogatory word for a Pakistani I, uh, I mentioned earlier on. It's more akin to somebody calling a New Zealander a Kiwi or an Australian an Aussie. It, it really, first of all, brilliant article from George DeBell. And it, it, the more the information's coming to light, the harder it is for Yorkshire to bury their heads in the sand about this. Daniel, I know I spoke to you this afternoon when this came out and you were, you were staggered by it. Yeah, I was fuming really because it's, it's just such blatant gaslighting. You know, this, this report, which hasn't been fully published, so we can't see it. We get little bits of information come out, but Yorkshire admit to various bits of information. And today we had the revelation that one of the players was using the P word. And their reaction to that is to say that, well, that's not racist, that's banter, but actually Zimbo is racist. You're the racist. I mean, this is absolutely gone completely nutso now. And if it was always, I mean, it always was deeply troubling and concerning. But there was a small part of me that could always understand the difficulty that a club would have when it's been essentially accused of institutional racism. It wants to defend itself. It doesn't want to believe that that's the case. And there are various legal issues involved around certain individuals. So I could understand, whilst not being happy with, to a degree, Yorkshire's response. This is just now insane. You're basically trying to, to do the switcheroo. And, and it's not on. I mean, I, I think. We've got to take Azim Rafiq out of it. It's very hard to do that. You you talked about how you feel for Azim, and I think we all do, actually. But you've got to take a step back and say, wait a minute, what facts have we got and what do we know? Regardless of what we do know about Azim, we know what Yorkshire has said in the report did happen to him and, and what words were used towards him. Then, having admitted that, to try to turn the tables and make out that he's the one who's who's in the wrong, as he quite rightly said, the idea that Yorkshire could say that he was, they didn't believe that he was offended. Wait a minute, I'm not, I'm just not having that. Why? Well, on what basis? How on earth are you going to impute what's going on in his mind? It's, it's terrible, really. And they're getting an awfully bad press out of it. There's an awful lot of people who are not going to become Yorkshire members next year. They seem to be digging ever deeper graves, but then you're right at the end of all that. There comes a, an individual human being who must be at his wit's end because how must it feel to be told that all the things you said did happen and then be told, yeah, but actually you're the one who's in the wrong because you, you weren't really offended and you're the racist because you called someone a Zimbo. I mean, I, I, I'm not lost for words, obviously, because I've just used a whole bunch, <laughs> but I'm lost, for, I'm lost for making any sense of why that would be Yorkshire's response. And obviously, I applaud George for bringing it to light. I offer Azim all my sympathy. 
and I, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know what needs to be done. I, no, I genuinely no, I can't I'm... make sense of it because it's so blatant and it's so ludicrous. Paul Sinner on Twitter, the comedian and and bloke in the chase, mm. said something brilliant today. He said, "Banter's a bit like sex. It's banter when both of you are, are doing it with respect for each other. Mm. Uh, if you're just doing it, if one of you's just bantering, you're a wanker." Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's essentially yeah. what's happened. Yeah, yeah, and um, and it it brings a different kind of tears to me. I I'm afraid from the ones that I experienced watching Josh Butler. Clearly, Yorkshire have got this this mindset of you know we we we'll admit some wrongdoing, but they're clearly their plan is to not admit too much wrongdoing because because they don't want to be seen to. And actually, it's I think that even they would admit now it's 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 bringing the heat on them tenfold actually and people are getting quite fed up and quite sick of it now. Finney, from a player's point of view, I'm fascinated about this because we see the sort of outward facing stuff on how the how the sport is tackling racism and we've seen things like players taking knees before games and we've seen in you know the football premier league say no to racism and these sorts of things but from a player's point of view how, how does it work? Do you get a pamphlet at the start of each season? Do you sit down in a classroom and look at a whiteboard. I genuinely don't know how, how you educate players in this day and age. Yeah, I think that there's a combination of things that are done at the moment. And I think it's conversations like this are the reason why more is being done um, because it, the education of it is important. And I think that the PCA do a good job at trying to educate players. So we'll sit down in a classroom and... Um, or on Zoom last year. We did it on Zoom because we couldn't be um, in a classroom. But you sit down and you're explained in a, in a good way about how saying things in a particular way will make people feel. And and the education around that, I think, is important to, to, to just make people aware of... I mean, people know what's acceptable mm. and what's not. But I think there are things that blur the boundaries and... And if there's any doubt about the way that you might communicate with someone or make someone feel, then there's no doubt, really. You don't say it or you don't do it. So I think the, the education around that so that we don't get to a stage where we are with Azim and Yorkshire, where it's sort of it just seems tit for tat, which I think is, is not what it should be about. I think you have to accept sometimes that, that what's happened is wrong and what you've done is wrong and you can only move on from that when you do accept it and educate yourself and the people around you and get better because ultimately I think Azim he wants people to admit that they were wrong but he wants it to be better and I think he's spoken about wanting it to be better for people that come after him um, he's experienced horrible things and and you have the utmost sympathy and sadness towards that situation but he would want as well people in the future to not have to experience what he has and the only way to do that is education so I don't think you can have enough education in answer to your question I've waffled mm. on a bit there and I apologize but mm. I think yes the PCA do try and educate the players at the moment and I think that it's good but I also believe at the moment especially now it's such a sensitive subject and people have to be clued up and aware on it to, to just understand that it's not acceptable. And if there was any doubt in anyone's mind that, that it's not acceptable. So what more can always be done is what I'm trying to say without saying that it's inadequate, because I do feel the PCA have made an effort in recent years um, since the conversation has got stronger to try and educate players better.
Well, you never need to apologise for waffling on a podcast that features Daniel Norcross, Finney, but I thought you spoke very eloquently <laughs> and very well there. Uh, well, I mean, it's a serious note to finish on, but it's one that we absolutely couldn't ignore. And I've just got a lot of respect for Azim Rafiq. And, um, you know, it, it would be very easy for for somebody to, you know, to get knocked back as many times as he has to to go, oh, do you know what? It's more it's more hassle than it's worth. But he clearly feels strongly about it. And, and I don't blame him. I, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but Toby, I refuse to allow this podcast to end on a completely downbeat okay. because I've, I've got, I've got another theory to end with. Oh today. God. Here we go. Yes, Strap yourself it's, in, Finney. Well, it's, well, it, it is, it's one that I expect Stephen Finn to hate, but I know that, that it will please the fans and it will please the broadcasters. It'll bring more money into the game. It will grow more players who come after Finney, but it won't please Finney. And it is my solution to net run rate. And, oh. Uh, we all know that net run rate is an imperfect system. I think you'll like this I idea. I saw your Toby. tweet. I saw your fucking tweet about it. No. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Toby, I think I think you'll like it, but Finney will hate it. So basically, it strikes me that in football you get like goal difference, yeah, for and against. Yeah. And when Liverpool are five 0 up against Manchester United with two minutes to go or three minutes to go, they don't stop the game because it, it's actually physically impossible for Man United to draw level. They keep going so that Liverpool could maybe get a sixth goal to improve their goal difference. And the problem with net run rate is that if a side gets to their target, right, they don't get the opportunity to maximise the number of runs they might have scored in their 20 overs. So, like, when England found themselves having gone past Australia with 8.2 overs left of the game and with a bunch of wickets in hand and Butler on 71 not out, my proposal is that Australia have to keep bowling until England have bowled out or they've had 20 overs. So England have won the game and now they get to score lots more lovely, beautiful runs against demoralised and broken bowlers, right? And then your league table will simply say how many runs you scored and how many runs you conceded. We'd have run difference and then we'd know what was going on. We'd get the full game, the advertisers would be happy, the fans would be happy. The only people who would be pissed off would be the bowlers in the losing <laughs> team, which is why Finney has all immediately said, fuck off, because he's too used to failure. Embrace success, Finney. Embrace the fans. This game's about entertainment. This is the future. I mean, I mean, it probably would be the fairest way, but it would just descend into chaos once the game was won. The batsman, I mean, we did a thing at uni in our pre-season games where you had to, whatever ball you face first, you had to draw a shot out of the hat. So, for example, you might, you might get the switch hit, you might get the reverse sweep. Uh, my favourite, my mate got the leave and got bowled middle and leg. I mean... It would basically turn into that. You would just no, it would. It turns into it just turns into cricket in which batters are allowed to smash the ball to all parts. No. And good disagree. And also, you have wicket keepers bowling. I said like wicket games where nothing's on it. You exactly. Think, Stephen funny... Finn would be bowling off break. Do you think you you no, really gonna, wouldn't? No. Are you going to convince? I wouldn't because I wouldn't damage my stats. No, you're right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You're going to go up to Joff Archer and say, Joff, mate, do us a favour. Can you bowl? And I know we've lost the game, but you've got three more overs here to bowl at Chris. Gale. Yeah, well, you've got you've got to cut, you've got to fight tooth and nail for every last run because you and I both know that, Ed, that groups can be decided on net run rate. And you know, You've never fought tooth and nail thing, for anything in your life. Now I haven't, but 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 very <laughs> excitingly, I'm just putting it out there so it looks like I'm precinct if it happens in England's group. England could win all five games, and the other five sides could all win two games. There'd be five sides level on four points, all scrambling for net run rate. If only we had four and against. 
then we'd know what was going on. <laughs> Do you know what? It's not your worst theory ever. I mean, it won't happen and it's still stupid, but as your ideas go, it's not the worst. Uh, well, let us know on Twitter at Zero Ducks Pod what you think of Norcross's latest crazy theory, but it's better than leg buys count against the bowler. Uh, lovely to see you both chaps. I will see you next week, but uh, enjoy. See you. Cheers. I really look forward to it. Podcast Network.